for certainty is one of the greatest diseases that the mind will ever face. That's a quote by Mr. Robert Greene, who's my guest today. You've likely heard of Robert Greene because he is the author, New York Times bestselling author of The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law that he co-wrote with 50 Cent, Mastery, The Laws of Human Nature, and his upcoming book, The Daily Laws, and his upcoming book, The Law of the Sublime, which we briefly talked about at the end. So he's the younger son of Jewish parents. Uh, he grew up in Los Angeles and attended the University of California, Berkeley, before finishing his degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison with the Bachelor of Arts in Classical Studies. He estimates that he's worked over 80 jobs, including construction worker, translator, magazine editor, and Hollywood movie writer, all before his first book, The 48 Laws of Power. So Robert and I get into a number of topics. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Uh, if you've read any of his books, you will likely have appreciated his approach. Uh, we get into power, how power shapes our culture, our society. We talk about the misuse of power, the mis, uh, misinterpretations of what power is and what can happen when we disconnect or disavow our own power. And we take some interesting approaches. Uh, I ask him about how our current society approaches power and how that will affect the way that we utilize things like social media, artificial intelligence, how consciousness plays into power. So this is a, a very in-depth conversation, not just about power, but how our culture, our society, our minds are all impacted and affected. And we also talk about the current times, what's happening in our society and our culture right now and how power impacts that. So I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. As per usual, uh, do share this podcast episode with somebody that you know will enjoy it. Uh, Robert's books are have spread far and wide. I mean, he has sold millions and millions of copies. So I'm sure that when this episode launches, uh, you will have a, a few people in your life that have likely read his books and will enjoy this conversation because I ask him some questions that he says he has never talked about on a podcast before. Without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Robert Green. Thanks for having me, Connor. My pleasure. Just in the first 20 seconds of us interacting, you managed to crack me up in a pretty strong way. So we're, we're off to a good start. I'll try and keep going. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, you set, you set a high bar for, yeah. for comedy okay. already. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, let's just kick things off. It's such an honor and pleasure to have you here. I really admire and appreciate your work and, and have personally benefited from it over the years. And, and so it's, it's a treat to have you. Uh, and I, I need to start with the question that I ask all my guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Well, you know, there are probably several such moments, but I think the, uh, the one that I would have to choose would go all the way back before a lot of people were born who would listen to the show. Back in 1995, I was, I say, 35 years old, 36 years old, and I was a struggling writer. I was living in Santa Monica in a one-bedroom, very kind of down-and-out apartment. It was nice, but not that nice. And I was struggling, and I was depressed, quite depressed. I knew that I had something to message or something to contribute to this world, but I hadn't quite found it yet. I was working in Hollywood, and I hated Hollywood. Anyway, I was invited to Italy to help my old friend from college launching a new media school in Italy. And there, he wanted me to help write the book that would launch the school. And there I met a man named Joost Elfers, a Dutchman. My friend was also Dutch. And Joost is what's called a book packager which doesn't really, it's not very common anymore, but back in the day, it was basically a, a person who would produce books, who would put everything together, the look, the design, the content, and then sell it to a publisher. And Joost is a very strange, interesting man, very European, and I liked him a lot, very intelligent, very kind of weird. And one day, the school that we were working at was kind of unpleasant. I mean, was, to be in Italy is always pleasant. So this, that's kind of a contradiction in terms. But the place itself was full of all these weird, very Machiavellian political games. And of course, we were in Italy, the home of Machiavelli. And we were walking along the Cays of Venice, near where the school was. And he asked me, just out of the blue, if 
I had any ideas for a book. And something kind of clicked inside of me. I never really thought of writing a book except maybe fiction, which I had tried before in the past. And kind of triggered something within, you know, that feeling deep inside when somebody asks you something and it, it kind of resonates with you and your fate and your future. For me, it was a fateful moment. And I improvised right on the spot a book idea that had to do with power. And I said, look, Yost, I read a lot of history. And here we are in Italy dealing with this very powerful man, a very famous Italian art designer, etc. And he looks very modern, sophisticated, but he's actually something right out of the 16th century. He's just from the, the era of Machiavelli. He's playing the same games. They're not so bloody. People aren't losing, aren't having, being decapitated, but it's just as political, just as much intrigue. So I sort of improvised a book idea that dealt with the timeless aspect of power. And I told him a story to illustrate a story that I had heard years before when I lived in Paris. And Nicolas Fouquet, who was the uh, important minister in the court of Louis XIV, and in order to ingratiate himself in Louis, he threw this magnificent party in this chateau. And he thought this is such a beautiful party that Louis would love him and promote him to prime minister. And the party was a great success. Everybody loved it. It was the greatest party that he'd ever seen. Fireworks, plays, dances. The next day, Louis had him arrested and thrown into prison where he spent the rest of his life. And it was basically he committed the sin of outshining the master. He appeared more popular to princes and late lords and ladies than the king himself. And Louis never admitted that was what it was about, but you never want to do that. And that's, that's kind of the idea of how my book is this timeless element, because it still exists today, never outshine the master. He got very excited, and he, he said in his Dutch accent that he would pay me to live while I wrote half the book. And I went from being very depressed and lost, and even slightly suicidal, something like, wow, my life has a purpose. I'm going to make this book happen. Here's somebody who is really excited about it. And it was a good idea, and it did draw from all of my experiences and all of my knowledge. And I was so motivated to make this happen, to kind of pull myself the hole that I'd been, that it was by far the biggest moment in my life, the most life-changing moment. And it did. It turned everything around. But it happened because a lot of luck was involved because I happened to meet this man. And I was in a good mood on that day in Venice. And I improvised this great story. So that would be my moment. I mean, that definitely sounds like a, a catalyst. And I mean, your, your writing career has you know flourished since then. And, and the, book, the book that you went on to write has done exceptionally well. So, <laughs> so can't complain. Yeah, yeah, can't complain. Well, that's, I mean, that's an incredible story. I actually didn't know that. I appreciate you sharing that. I'm interested actually to just dovetail off of that conversation around power to maybe just pose the question if, if you can illuminate some of the time that we find ourselves in and how power is being not only used, but to maybe define how the time that we're in, the crisis that we're in is being determined by power and how power is being used because you've openly talked about the crisis generation. And so I'll yeah. I'll leave that that you know question package at your doorstep and and you go with it where well, you go. Well, thank you. I guess I have to answer the doorbell. Well, you know, there's a lot to discuss there. Basically, I maintain from my book that power is this sort of elemental human need that we all share, and it's not about grand political figures, presidents, prime ministers, and all their political games. It's on an individual level. The feeling that you have no control over your destiny, over your boss, your colleague, your spouse, your children, is the most miserable sensation a human can have. And it makes somebody warped and neurotic and passive aggressive. So I wanted to open the door and make people be more honest about their desire for power and not be so hypocritical. And the idea, which has become even more extreme since 1998 when the book came out, was that in the past... Power was something that was often concentrated in the hands of elites, you know, generally in a country like this, white men, and anybody else was pretty radically excluded from it, right? And so these laws of power were something that the elites of our country or other countries kind of knew, 
but they kept it as a secret because this was, you know, they didn't want to have to share their power. And things were starting to have been changing over the years where more and more people want a share of that power. And so one of the big groups in the late 90s that was going through that kind of crisis was in hip-hop music, rappers like Jay-Z, 50 Cent, etc. The, the situation of the black musician in the past is one of been radical exploitation. They had no control over their music. They were the genius, like a Duke Ellington. But the music companies took, took all the money. Since then, we've seen this kind of frittering away where power centers are getting more and more narrow and smaller. These tiny little niches where people, obviously women in the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, more and more people feel that sense of helplessness that they might have accepted 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but nobody will accept it anymore. And there's a kind of an anger and a violence to it. I don't say anything negative about that because sometimes violence is necessary. But there's this kind of energy that you can feel in the air where more and more people who felt excluded don't want to feel excluded anymore. And what goes along with that kind of evolution of power, because you can trace from back in primitive times where the pharaoh commanded an entire country to now where everybody on the internet is like a pharaoh with their Instagram account where they can you know, reach millions of people and have this weird kind of power. So that's the evolution of it. But what it means is that people don't have faith anymore in large power centers, right? They don't have faith in the governance of our country, even in democracy, in political parties, in big business, in, in large corporations, etc. And so this creates a lot of turmoil, right? And we're going through a period like that. Now, when we talk about the crisis generation, which I wrote about in The Laws of Human Nature, these things tend to follow, follow a pattern in history. So it's not like this has never happened before. I mean, the French Revolution was probably the most radical moment in history of that kind of turnaround, where people beheaded the king, got rid of the royalty, and they wanted power for the French people. So it happens in these patterns, in these waves, and we can see it throughout history. And so the pattern usually follows different generations. And the generation that we're going through now, particularly Generation Z, I would say, is one that what is rising up is a kind of a revolutionary generation. I don't mean revolution necessarily in carrying guns out on the street and you know mass protests, et cetera, although that can happen. But it comes on the heels of a crisis generation. And the crisis generation would be more like millennials, where you grow up in a world, and I understand, I'm not, a, obviously, I'm not a millennial, but you grew up in, I'm assuming you are. I don't I'm like know. A, I'm, like a, I'm like a cusping, I mean, my, you know, heli the helicopter landing pad at the back would say otherwise, but it's, yeah, <laughs> I'm like 37, so I'm right on the cusp there. Well, you're a millennial. Yeah. That's definitely millennial. Well, you grew up in a period where, obviously, the boomer generation kind of dominated the scene. And they dominated not just in politics, but in culture and in business. And that generation came up with a particular model, a particular mindset. Much of it we can see very strongly in the 1960s. Hmm. And you grew up in a world that's completely different from what I grew up in. And so this dominating generation that's controlling how things operate in this country has rules and conventions that have nothing to do with your own experience and the experience of people in your generation. And you feel it feels empty and it feels kind of disconnected and you get a bit angry about it. There's some kind of latent hostility towards the older generation. Ironically enough, a hostility that the boomers themselves felt at that time. And so you felt like it was a crisis. This world that you're growing up in doesn't have real meaning to you. It doesn't fit your circumstances. And so you're kind of lost. You don't know what you want. You don't know where to go. But you know it doesn't fit. And so then usually what happens is a generation emerges that can't stand it anymore and starts creating new trends, new ways of doing things. And it's going to dovetail with, with the pandemic, which is kind of one of those moments in capitalism they call it creative destruction, where entire, entire models, ways of doing things have been destroyed, like a tsunami has passed through. And so there's all of this empty space for creating new ways of thinking, 
new conventions, new way of being social, new ways of organizing things, new forms of entertainment. It's going to be very exciting, incredible amounts of opportunity. You know, there's a Chinese expression, I don't remember it exactly, but it says, where there's crisis, there is opportunity. And so this moment where things feel empty and there's like, we don't know where we're going, a new generation is going to rise up with all the energy that young people have because it's young people that drive trends. They're the ones that are interested in all the different things that matter to culture. They're going to rise up and they're going to create something new. And so it could be, you never know in history, I'm not a prophet, but it could be a very exciting time that we're heading into. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting perspective. And I'm curious as to, you talk about the crisis generation and that these things follow a pattern. Is it, does the crisis generation show up because power has been accumulated to an excessive degree? Like, I think we, we're living in one of the largest wealth gaps that has ever existed. So is it because of that or is it because of something like the internet where it's sort of dispersed um, the, the maybe illusion of power or power itself to into the hands of, of, of sort of everyday people? Because I feel like there's different forms, right? There's financial power, there's power of attention. I kind of wanted to get your, your take on that. Well, there, there are incredible vast inequalities of wealth, obviously, in this country, and it's very, very dangerous. If you look at through history of all moments that have led to some kind of crisis or revolution or incredible turmoil, there have been, economists have shown this, it does lead to something very radical and very drastic, and we're heading in that direction. So it is an interesting paradox that you bring up where more and more people have at least the appearance of power and control through the internet, where you don't have to necessarily deal with the middleman anymore in, in what you buy. You can go straight to the source where you can put your music right on the internet. It gives a kind of appearance of power and control. But as you rightly suggest, the real puppet strings, the real people who control things are in these, these mega dynasties, you know, like Google, Facebook, etc. And they are the ones that really, really have the power, right? We see a lot of that playing out right now. And so that has to obviously change. And that requires a whole new mindset. And that requires where they actually leave space for new businesses to emerge, which isn't going to happen. You know, I talked in, in, in the power book, a law that a lot of people think is very mean and cruel which is called crush your enemy totally. And I just said the dynamic in warfare. <laughs> yeah, just there's something appealing about it just yeah. slightly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's conquering. I mean, yeah. I think the, the part of that that I really appreciate about your work is that it does speak to certain parts of the human experience, you know, that we do like to conquer in some degree. And sorry, I didn't mean to oh. cut you off, but I think that it's, we're going to get, uh, hopefully we get into this after talking about the dark part, you talking about the shadow. I'm a big proponent of Jungian and his, yeah. his, his framework. I think that when we disown power, we disown our craving for power, it moves into the unconscious. And I yeah. think a lot of, you know, a lot of the byproducts of what we're seeing today are people acting in unconscious ways, Most acting definitely. out their desire for pressed power. And, and 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 kind of disguising it with all of this sort of virtue signaling, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But just briefly to get back, so for a generation that's emerging that wants real change and not the facade of change, there has to be not this level of naivete as if the world is changing, the internet is different. This time, you know, the old phrase in, in, in business finance, this time it's different, which has been repeated over and over again since the 18th century, it this time isn't different. There are the things that govern the internet have been played out in the past, with television, with radio, with the telegraph, with the railroad, etc. So you can't be naive, you can't be stupid and think, just because I'm young and just because I have this tool and this ability to get attention all around the world, that it's going to be that it's a fait accompli. No, you have to understand that there are incredibly centralized centers of power in this world today. And this world has to change in a very radical way. It can't just be sort of little things in the exterior. It has to be something from deep below. So that's all. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, can you say a little bit more about the opportunity within crisis? Because what I almost hear you saying is that the crisis can bring about the emergence of that or, or the change of the power structure itself. And maybe, maybe I'm taking a leap here, but the opportunity is in sort of tackling some of the redistribution of power, that that's part of the opportunity within the crisis. Yes. But as I've pointed out in all of my books, particularly the 33 strategies of war and in the laws of power, is that you have to be very strategic in order to overturn an order, in order to create real change in this, in this world. Mm. You know, you can't just simply think that your energy and your positive emotions, your desire for justice is enough. You have to understand, you have to take a step back and you have to be very, very intelligent about how this world operates, right? People don't give up power because they want to. And so a lot of what we saw in just the last couple of years with the Black Lives Movement, with the Me Too movement, is that large, big businesses, large corporations have co-opted that movement. They're trying to steal that energy. They make all their ads about social justice and how they're on the side of it because it's smart business. But it isn't necessarily real. It doesn't necessarily come from the right place. It comes from the same place of, I want to control the environment. I don't want to be at the mercy of the public. I want to be the man or the woman riding the horse and not being led around. So the main thing is this incredible opportunity now for creating all kinds of new businesses, new models, new, not just business, but it's in culture, new models of, of even sports or anything. This incredible opportunity now, but you have to be smart about it. You can't just yell and be angry and think that you're, because you're on the right side, it will happen because it isn't how it works. Yeah, it does seem like virtuosity and virtuousness has again sort of been co-opted by the by the shadow in some way. That that there's, I don't know where I heard, but someone you know someone said like beware virtuous people, right? Because there's sort of like this malintent or this malice that's hiding behind it to conscript or try and acquire power. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think we've all sort of seen it with this cancel culture that has become suddenly very pervasive. And now, you know, you have, you know, you have talks of government stepping in and, and deciding what should or should not be said on social media via text messages even. So that's almost like virtuousness taken to a, an extreme. Well, it's an age-old problem where, and I talked a lot about it in the 48 Laws of Power, where people have an adversity, they don't want to act like their, their power is what's motivating them. They don't want to admit it to themselves, and they certainly don't want to admit it to others. So there's incredible motivation to make what you're really after appear like it's for the social good, that it's part of a cause, that it's what you say as virtue, you know, that it's socially aware, etc. And so you're going to disguise your actual hunger and your lust for power some of which could be positive, but a lot of which could come from a very negative place in the, in, in the guise of I'm on the right side of justice. And it's very difficult to deal with because if someone's coming to you and saying, you know, what's motivating me to cancel this person at the university or, or the speaker is because they're against this positive progressive cause. Very difficult to argue against that because to argue against that immediately strategically puts you in the camp you know, the reactionary camp or something that's evil, right? So it's very clever that way, because if you make it so there's no middle ground, it's either good or evil, black or white, then you're kind of trapped in the argument, in the semantics that they have defined this in. So what I tell people is, you, ha you can't be seduced by the words that people say. People will say the grandest thing about their motivations. Nobody will present their canceling this right or other as a power move. They'll say it's because of the injustice involved. It's going to hurt people's feelings, blah, blah, blah. You know, and there's a whole other issue there is the fragility of people in this world today. Something that I can never remember his name. The guy who wrote Black Swan, Tahi, Talib. Talib, he, yeah. he, he anti-fragile. You know, that's a great book. And this is another, a whole other issue. But people are going to disguise it. And you have to look at their actions, not their words. You have to see it as moves on a power on a chessboard where they are angling for more and more control, right? And so if you take the model that I have created 
that people want more power, not less. How many times do you ever see an individual or a group or a boss give up their power? Pretty rarely. They want more of it. They want more control. That's the dynamic. So you have to be aware of that. And as I said earlier, you can't be naive or innocent about this. So look at the look at people's moves as if they are game, they're playing a game of chess and they're angling for more power. And sometimes it's for a very worthy cause, and sometimes it's very deceptive and tricky. And you have to be, have to be smart in this world and step back and not be caught up in all the emotions that are being fed so much in, in social media. Well said. Thank you for that. I feel like you're almost like advocating for people to claim their own power, the pursuit of it in some way as a means of taking it out of out of the shadow, out of the unconscious, out of uh, the, the sort of area of our actions where we blind ourselves to our intention. I'm curious as to, you know, if somebody is listening to this, I can kind of hear some of my audience being like, okay, where do I start? You know, if I've disconnected from my own power, if I've disavowed from that, what might that look like for me to begin to have a sort of reclamation process of, of one's own individual power? Yes, there has to be some, self, some self-awareness here. So you have to be aware that that desire is within you so that, you know, you have a level of ambition. You have a desire for some degree of power and control. It's not evil. So, you know, look at yourself squarely in the eye and admit it. Because the worst thing are people who operate unconsciously, who are not aware of their desire for power. And they're the ones that play all the nasty kind of passive weird games that are going on because they don't want to be honest with themselves. So you have to first confront your shadow. You have to first confront the fact that a lot of what motivates your behavior is unconscious. You think that you know in your day-to-day life that you're in control of what you do. You're in control of your emotions. You're in control of your actions. And in my last book, I beat you over the head with the idea that that's completely false. You have no idea who you are. For 98% of your actions, you really aren't aware of the source of them or where they come from. You're not aware of this desire for power because it's something we don't encourage in our culture. But if you look at children, children are very kind of natural humans. They haven't been, you know, their spirit hasn't been crushed yet. They have a very definite desire for power. They want, when they want something from their mother or father, they are absolute geniuses at getting it and manipulating. So there's something deeply ingrained in human nature that even involves manipulation. So get off your high horse, get off your throne, and stop imagining that you're some kind of superior being, that you're not narcissistic, that I'm not aggressive, that I don't have a shadow. Look in the mirror and judge your actions and deal with some honesty in that. Because what happens is, you know, you look on social media today, and it's actually the perfect medium for people acting out their shadow with no consequences. Because in this anonymous environment, usually, where you don't have to pay any price for saying something ugly or mean or getting at all of your dark side, it's just a magnet for attracting all of that dark energy that's floating around in the air. Because a lot of people in a politically correct environment feel kind of repressed. And this is their way to get it out and just like yell at people and make them feel bad and push people around while never admitting that that's what they're up to, right? Mm -hmm. So first, everything begins with in being a human being, the subject of my last book, is being aware and being aware that you are an animal, that you come from people, that you're descended from primates, if you believe in evolution, which I do. And, you know, we have primitive roots, we have primitive desires, some of which involve envy. Everybody is is subject to feelings of envy, myself included. You're not exempt just because you have a university degree or an MBA. You're just as primitive as anyone else. We're emotional creatures. So the main thing is to look in the mirror and admit that this is what is motivating a lot of your behavior. With that awareness, you can then begin to control it to some degree and you can then become a little more strategic with that energy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting as you were talking about the child. My wife and I have a four and a half month old. Oh, uh, you know very well. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I do. You take the bottle away or the boob away, and immediately, you know, he's just losing his shit. Right? It's like, give me that back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all. Yeah. It's you know, it's all about him. But 
Um, I mean, I think what's what's also fascinating about what you're saying is bringing in this online space. And you know, Jung talked about the collective unconscious, mm-hmm. and that within us is sort of like this this um, unconscious capacity to feel into, but be connected to the collective in some capacity. And I would have had this notion that the internet, in some ways, is externalization of that collective unconscious, or at the very least, that it's it's become a vehicle for our collective unconscious to interact with one another, for our shadows to interact with one another, and our repressed nature to interact with one another. And so, how do we how do we begin to even maybe I'm asking you an unanswerable question? I've realized that, like I just as soon as I thought about it. You know, how do we begin to even face that? I'm still going to ask it anyway. <laughs> how do we begin to even face that? Because I think, you know, with our generation, with the crisis that we face, I think a lot of people can feel that there is this, there is this nature embedded into social media that while it has some ups, largely is creating kind of psychological, emotional destruction on society. And I think people are just generally left with, what the fuck do we even do with that? And maybe you don't have the answer to that, but I would just love to hear your, your take on, on some of what I just laid out. Well, you have to realize that you think you're in control of social media, but it's actually it's controlling you. Mm. You're like a pawn in this vast empire. I'm not saying who really is controlling it. I'm not trying to be all matrix here. Like there's some dark power behind it. I but knew you're you were not... Morpheus. I knew, I knew you were okay. Morpheus. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm not going to admit it here, but maybe somewhere else. But anyway, you are being controlled, right? The most powerful instrument ever created for generating money, for generating buying power. Look at where Amazon has got us to. It's an incredibly powerful tool for stirring up continual emotions. That's really its main thing is it's kind of viral effects, right? So you have to step back and you have to say, it's a tool. Everything that a human creates is a tool, just like made tools way back hundreds of thousands of years ago. The internet is not like an ax, but it is in the same way. It is that very primitive thing. It's something we've created. And tools aren't inherently evil and they're not inherently good. They're just simply what we make of them. And so in the very beginning, when the internet first started, way back in the late 90s or whenever you want to go back to early knots, whenever you got involved, it was a lot different feel to it. There was a feel to it like, well, this is pretty exciting. I can buy whatever I want. I can communicate with all over the people with all over the world. I can find their interests and, and create little communities. There was a kind of, you know, sense of real progress here. And then what do we see slowly but slowly? Human nature takes over and human nature creates something that in the beginning seemed kind of exciting and turns it into this ugly, dark cesspool. I mean, it's not completely that way because there's still great things on the Internet. But I remember back in the day, early days, there would be things like on Amazon where you wanted to buy a book and then underneath there, there would be recommendations about similar books and then other people, there'd be little communities around a book. And me, I'm very, my favorite writer is Friedrich Nietzsche. And I found all these exciting little places for Nietzsche, et cetera. It was like a tool for connecting to people. They got rid of that like three years later because it wasn't good for business. It was cluttering up the page. It wasn't leading to purchases, right? So this kind of thing that had a, a sort of air about it was kind of heavenly or or you know, potentially beautiful, slowly turns into this other thing, which is human nature slowly takes over. So if you're aware that you have swallowed the pill, that you are being controlled, that is half of it. So then you can control your emotions, you know, because social media is, a, is people who've designed it are masters at marketing and making you click and making you press this button on making you check your Instagram profile every hour. You know, I know that pull because I feel it myself and I have to struggle against it. But you can't just like let yourself go take these things and think that they're that you are the one in controlling it because somebody else is pulling your strings. And so with a degree of awareness, and I think could happen would be positive for Generation Z and that people coming up and even after that generation, whatever that would be, would be, I'm kind of tired of social media. 
I really want to interact with people. I want a different level of experience. I want an experience that's more real and human than this kind of superficial realm that we're all living with. I have a body, I have senses, I have emotions, I have things, and they're not satisfied by this tool. It's not like they want to get rid of it. But my hope is that a generation emerges that goes, this isn't how we humans should live. There's something, there's something else that we want. And I'm young and I'm hungry and I want experiences. Let's find something else. Let's, let's use this instrument in a different way. I could be naive right there, and maybe that'll no. never happen, but that's my No, I mean, thank you for that. It was um, almost made me emotional hearing that because it felt very genuine and authentic and, and kind of sheds a little bit of light on a possibility of what we can return to. I'm curious, you know, you talk about human nature seeping into social media, the internet, and, and shaping it. I'm curious to get your take before we talk about engaging our dark side, artificial intelligence and how human nature might interplay with that. Like how, how aware do we need to be? Because we're not far from it, from my understanding. We're not far. We're sort of on the precipice of creating AI in a very like artificial general intelligence in a very real, serious way. And based on what I hear you saying about human nature and, and power and our desire for power, is there a way that you feel like we should be going about creating AI in a, in a positive way? Is that a rabbit hole that we should avoid altogether? Like, I know this is maybe an obscure topic, but I'm so fascinated <laughs> to get your thoughts on it. Well, there have been articles written recently, I can't remember where I read it, it might have been in the New York Times or somewhere else, about how AI now is, as exists, before it becomes truly powerful in the science fiction way in 10, 20, 30 years from now, is full of all kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, full of all kind of biases, right? So when the medical profession is using AI a lot now, there's certain areas that are using a lot of it, right? Businesses like in the medical profession. And you have to understand that it's humans that are programming artificial intelligence. It's not like this self-created organism that evolves its own intelligence. We are creating it. We are feeding it. It's the data that it should have. We are feeding it to it our own dark side, our own prejudices, our own biases. So we are simply manufacturing human nature on a more diabolical and potentially powerful level, right? So once again, return to this idea. It's not a neutral instrument. People use it for certain reasons. It could be good or it could be evil, right? It's not just simply wonderful the way it is. It's not inherently a great thing. And so, you know, and the other thing is, I got a lot about into this in mastery. And intelligence is not about data. It's not about information. It's not about, it's not so much digital. Human beings we have an intelligence that simply cannot be reproduced by machines. I know I'm going to sound like an old fogey, a dinosaur, but there are a lot of very intelligent people who've said the same thing, right? Our way of, of interacting is full of emotion. We're actually more emotional. Neuro neuroscientists have shown that there are people who have had the emotional side of their brain destroyed, right? And it made them people who were incredibly irrational. They couldn't make right decisions. They couldn't judge if a person might be tricky or not because they lost contact with their own emotions. So our intelligence depends on these very finely sensitive instruments that have evolved over millions of years that allow us to detect things that can't be put into words. That's who we are. So much of our intelligence is nonverbal, is through detecting behavior patterns, is sensing things. It's so much more complex that artificial intelligence, I believe, will never be able to reproduce that level of interesting and complexity that the human brain. The human brain is by far the most magnificent thing that's ever existed in the history of the universe. I don't know. Perhaps on another planet, I'd be convinced otherwise. I haven't been there yet. But the human brain, as people have said, is the most complex organism in the entire universe. It's insane how powerful how complex it is. And so naive, it's going back to what Mary Shelley wrote in Frankenstein. It's our arrogance, it's our thinking that we can create something as brilliant as evolution, and we can't. So there's a bit of arrogance and could pay a price for it. I'm not saying it's all bad, it could be good. If people 
understood that we are programming it, we are giving it our biases, our dark side, et cetera, and to be aware of that. I'm not a huge fan of AI. I'm a little bit wary. Yeah. Well said. I, I really appreciate you going down that that path with me because I was just insatiably curious about it. And I think you articulated it quite well. And I think in the 300 episodes that I've done, you are the first person to use the word old fogey, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I got a good chuckle. I was like, yeah, because yeah. that expression obviously means that I am an old right. fogey because that's nobody it. under the age of 50 uses that expression. So that's that it's kind of a self-fulfilling thing there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wear that I wave that flag proudly. I know that I'm not young anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think what you're saying is so fascinating because in many ways, like I've, I've had a few neuroscientists on the show. I've had, you know, um, spiritual teachers like Rupert Spire on the show who I, who I really respect. And, and I think one of the things that I've really come to learn is that we know very little about consciousness itself. No. Like we just know very little, you know, we can, yeah, I'll just let you say what you want to say about, about consciousness and how it fits into this. Well, it's the one great mystery that probably we'll never solve. And let's be honest with it and not be so arrogant because we're studying our own self. Yeah. So, you know, in physics, they came up in the 20s in quantum mechanics that in observing a phenomenon on a very quantum level, our observation is altering the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So our consciousness is altering what we see and what happens, right? We're not, we can't study our own consciousness. We can come, there have been some very interesting theories like Antonio Damasio, a neuroscientist, who've tried to explain what it could be, what generates it. But it's like yourself trying to describe something that's so close to you that you have no distance from it. It would take an alien, you know, we're back to aliens, who to study us, who could begin to perhaps piece, piece the puzzle together. But we're too close to it. We can never really understand it. It is an amazing thing, and I'm talking about it in my new book on the sublime. It's simply one of the most insane phenomena in the history of the universe, consciousness, that we are able to, to know things that we can and to be able to, to solve all of these mysteries and puzzles in science, etc., create great works of art. Consciousness is the most amazing phenomenon that's ever happened. But let's just, as part of it, let's just have some humility and understand that we can never really get to what is the source of it. How do we explain it on a deep level? Because we're trying to explain ourselves and we don't have any distance from it. That's all I think. Yeah, it's, it reminds me there's a, a Zen parable that says, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping or, yeah. you know, what is what is it like for for teeth to bite themselves? You know, it's right. like it's it's Zen koans are, are fascinating in many ways because they point towards that which we are trying to understand. Well, it's the idea that words can explain everything. So you can't verbally explain consciousness because it's not like a formula. It's not like a little pat few sentences or several pages that can explain it. It's more than that. It's things that aren't, can't even be put into words. Can you, um, maybe we'll just wrap up rather than talking about the dark side. <laughs> maybe we'll save that for a secondary conversation where we okay. can focus solely on that. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about the sublime and, this, and the, the book that you're writing and, and where the sublime fits into our life. It's an interesting topic. Well, the book that I've been meaning to write since I think the year 2005 it's something that's been brewing in my brain for a long time. And then I got distracted from it. The, the 50 cent book that I wrote, then Mastery, then Human Nature. And then two months after I finished Human Nature, in which the last chapter is about mortality and the sublime, it's even part of the title. I had a stroke, which I came this close to, to dying. You know, my wife, I was driving, she saved my life. And I was sort of in a coma. I was in the hospital for a week. I've still lost control of the left side of my body. I mean, it's getting better. Anyway, suddenly this book that I'd been thinking of for so many years had real meaning, really hit me viscerally. Because what is the sublime? So the idea is that to be a human being is to live within a circle. And that, what I mean by that is we create conventions and codes. That's who we are. We create forms. So we think that we're free to think anything, but that's not true. We live inside that circle, and we think in certain patterns that are culturally conditioned. We think in certain patterns that other people follow that come from the time that we live in, etc. Right? And they're codes and conventions. 
And so what lies beyond that circle is what I call the realm of the sublime. If your mind can go beyond those conventions and those codes, you're suddenly touching upon something that's new, that's different, and it gives you like a shiver. So the sublime is a combination of two emotions, pain and pleasure, joy and terror, happiness and fear, however you want to look at the combination. It's a mix of things, and that's what makes it so powerful. So if it were just joy, it would be kind of weak and sentimental. But because there's a sense of slight terror in it, it's, it's like making you, it's making you, pumping your adrenaline, makes you excited. So if you're climbing up a mountain and you could fall at any moment and there are mountain lions around, your senses are alive and, you know, and it's incredibly beautiful. You're experiencing those mix of two emotions and it's very powerful. And people who are mountain climbers have very often experienced the sublime. They're one of the best sources of it, right? And so the ultimate thing outside that circle is death. Because nobody knows what death is. We don't know, you know, we think that it's the end of all things. And, you know, it seems like the most logical answer, but we don't know that mystery. So that's beyond the circle. So to have a near-death experience, I had a small one, other people have had much more powerful ones, is by far the most profoundly sublime experience you can have. And if you read accounts of near-death experiences, they're unbelievable. So people who were like, stop breathing for several minutes, right? Things flood into their mind that are so wild that you can't imagine. And people have speculated that perhaps at that moment of death, you're actually encountering reality in a way that we normally don't, mm. right? And I go into that a lot in the new book. But so I have like 15 forms of the sublime, depending on the kind of area that it covers. Obviously, the last one, you know, Big Bang will be death itself. But then there's like the cosmic sublime, which is coming to terms with this insane universe that we live in. Then there's the biological sublime evolution and how humans, the fact that you, Connor, are here talking to me is so insanely unlikely. The odds of you and me existing and talking are like beyond, so astronomical, I can't even find the numbers against it because you have to add up all those moments in evolution where complex animals and almost never evolved, all the little bottlenecks where things might have not ever happened the way they did, then the mass extinction of the dinosaurs, etc. The fact that humans almost went extinct several hundred thousand years ago, etc. The fact that your parents may have never met and multiply that by the 70,000 generations that have preceded you, you would not be who you are, hmm. is utterly like no one goes around thinking, I want to open your mind beyond the little narrow circle that social media tends to create, where all we're interested in is what other people are having for breakfast or lunch or what they're wearing or what they're yelling about, their new outrage. I want to open your mind to something much wider and truly sublime, terrifying and wonderful at the same time. So I've got these different forms of it. And the chapter I'm writing now is about the pagan sublime. And how our more ancient ancestors, how they looked at the world through a totally different lens than our own. And yes, it had some very negative, primitive qualities to it. But there were also some elements that were absolutely so exciting. So that's giving you a kind of a taste for what I'm, I'm doing here. That sounds phenomenal. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to read it. It'll be about I... 20 years to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. Just in time for my son to you know, uh, compre comprehend it. That's good. That's good. Okay. Yes, that's right. I'll write it for your son. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, wonderful. Thank you so much for, for being on the show with me here today. I very much do look forward to speaking with you about this book on Sublime because that is a fascinating topic and, and one that I have spent many years questioning, immersed in, and sort of rummaging around it. And so to have somebody like yourself put that all together, I'm sure will be just stellar, stellar reads. So oh, well, thank you for, you. yeah, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for your perspective today. And um, I think you, where, where can people find you? I know you don't have necessarily like the website deal, but I've noticed that you've got a YouTube channel going and all that kind of stuff. Where can people just kind of well, to your to your writing? I have my old website, which is kind of outdated, but can still reach it. has a lot of information on it. It's called Power Seduction and War.com. The and spelled out. 
powerseductionandwar.com, links to all my books, and then links to my Instagram and, and Twitter. And then I have a book coming out in October called The Daily Laws. I don't know if you're familiar with Ryan Holiday <laughs> and his book, Daily Stoic. This is kind of my, Ryan kind of helped me with it. This is my version of Daily Stoic using passages from my books and material from podcasts like this one. And I have some essays in there that deal with my own experiences. And so every day is kind of, there are themes to the various, anyway, long story short, we've created a website for that. Damn, if I'm forgetting it, it'll be something like thedailylaws.com. We'll, something we'll I, think that may, I think that not even might be it, you know, old the fogey that I am. I should know that information. <laughs> I don't. I think I it's Part that you take out of our podcast here today will be the old fogey comment. <laughs> Afraid to be an old fogey. Just you know? call it the old fogey podcast. You know, that's your title for. Because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, do you find well, we'll yourself? Have... Do you find yourself doing dad jokes now that you're a dad? Oh, I was prepping oh, for years. I would like. <laughs> my wife says that like <laughs> to do stand up comedy. My wife was like. You know, you are many things, but you are not, you know, you're not the funniest guy on the block. And uh, because most of my jokes are dad jokes. So I've just been, I'm ready, man. <laughs> well, just wait a year or two and you, you're all, you're just totally primed for doing a lot of that. So yeah, I do a lot of dad jokes. I don't have any kids either, but. That's okay. You have, you have tons of, tons of kids and, and sort of young adults out there that you've helped raise through, yeah. through your work. So. Yeah, well, this and this it truly has been an honor. We'll have links to all of your all your work okay. in the show notes, and and truly, you know, anytime that you want to come back on, I would love to have you. So, oh, well, thank you, much, Connor. I really enjoyed it. Very intelligent conversation. Thank you, thank you so much for everyone that's out there. Don't forget to share this episode with somebody that you know will enjoy listening to it, and don't forget to rate and subscribe. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.